0: Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek,
1: and I'm Ryan Cooper. Pleased to welcome back David Dayan, um, executive editor, I believe, of the American Prospect, uh, to talk about you know the, the what the prospects got cooking and you know our our ongoing national crisis. So um, welcome to the show, David.
2: Hello. Happy to give notes on the nightmare.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I w- I wake up to your wonderful unsanitized. Uh, report, and uh, that's literally the name of it, and it's also uh, true in every other way, and it's, it's educational, if not always, um, full of sunshine, so we, th- we thank you for all that, that work that you're doing and putting into that.
2: Well, thank you, yeah. Um, you know, We started it around the middle of March, uh, right around the time that uh, the, the lockdowns started to, to be you know, put in place and uh so for 50 days or so every day we've been uh we've been documenting this uh this extraordinary situation and uh you know it is it is sometimes i'm popping up in inboxes to bring the horror to people but uh you know hopefully they get something out of it
1: yeah i actually wanted to start with just ex- uh, i think it's the most recent um issue of unsanitized which you titled <clears throat> We are moving confidently and proudly into mass death. So
0: there's that sunshine I was referring to. That's kind of the tenor.
2: Yeah, that's kind of the tenor of unsanitized uh, occasionally. But hey, I'm just, uh, you know, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just reporting the news.
1: So could you, uh, you know, kind of walk us through that? What, you know, what's going on?
2: So, I mean, as you know, um, you know, here we sit at the beginning of May. And several states, I think close to half of all states, have relaxed their guidelines for social distancing and lockdowns in some form or another. Um, this is happening despite the fact that the United States has not appreciably dropped any kind of case numbers or fatality numbers within this crisis. Uh, you see other countries around the world uh, if you want to be comparable, have gotten their, their case counts down to very low numbers before they even thought about bringing people outside of their homes. Uh, and in the United States, if you take away New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut, all of whom you know, were, were kind of at the beginning of the, the biggest spike and have actually done a decent enough job in suppressing uh, the number of cases— if you take them out, the rest of the United States is has not yet peaked. It is actually moving upwards at the same time that we're relaxing all these restrictions. And we know what this means. We know that this is going to create more cases. Uh, this is going to create more deaths. And uh, th- this is, uh, if it gets real bad, likely to push these states back into lockdown mode. Which would be just as devastating, if not more so, because they reopened only to close again, uh, just as devastating to the economy. So uh, we somehow have blocked all of this out of our minds, and we're we're. I don't know if the thinking is, "Hey, if Italy can do it, so can we," even though we're on completely different trajectories, uh, or you know, it just matters more to reopen. Uh, uh, you know, hot dog shops than it does to save people's lives. I, I don't know why uh exactly, but but that's clearly what we're doing. We are risking the lives of hundreds of millions of people, uh risking their health, uh in order to uh make a point about uh uh you know economic recovery.
1: Yeah, you you see like you know these protests that are, are going on, you know, it's, it just seems like a, a very small minority of people who are, you know, funded by right-wing AstroTurf groups. but nevertheless, a, a big, you know, a contingent of people who have been complaining at the, about the lockdown, that it's not worth it and so on. But, you know, what we clearly see is that, you know, Everybody agrees the lockdown sucks. It's horrible and it's devastating the economy and we should get out of it as soon as possible. But, you know, as you say, in other countries, what you got to do is solve the virus is the problem and the virus will create lockdowns, whether you institute them formally or not, because people will be too frightened to leave their homes. You know, restaurant bookings are down by like 90 percent before anybody ever, you know, formally closed them. Right, and I mean so that—that's—that's
2: that's so the thing, Ryan. I mean, I mean, you know, what the—the the thing that might paradoxically save us is that the—the the public is smarter than the representatives that they happen to elect. You know, <laughs> um, uh, the people re- recognize that. Uh, yeah, maybe I'm not going to risk it all, so I can get a blooming onion. And watch, you know, uh, 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 some movie with Martin Lawrence or something. Maybe, maybe that's not the best idea and best use of my time. And, you know, the early, the early sort of uh, uh, evidence on this from states like Georgia and Texas that have reopened to a certain degree is a little bit mixed. I've seen some stories that have, uh, you know, bars say we had two customers all weekend. And then I've, ha- I've heard others that say, we are at the capacity that we're allowed to be at, which is half full or 25% full or whatever. Um, there's going to be a non-trivial section of the public that takes its cues from the government, right? That says, yeah. well, they, they say it's okay for us to go out, so I guess it's okay. Um, and that non-trivial segment might be enough, even though it's not a majority, even though it's not uh, what the, the, the general population sort of wants to have happen, uh, it might be enough to sustain and grow case numbers and, uh, and, 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 and death rates. And more important, it, it risks having more people who have the disease who we don't know about because we don't have the testing system in place to find everybody who has contracted the coronavirus and isolate them, and uh, find out who they were in contact with and isolate them, we have none of that in place. Uh, absolutely none of that 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 uh, infrastructure is put together, and so uh, you know, it, it, it. There's a serious danger, even if it's not fully immersive, even, even if most of the public is not taking seriously the reopening of the country, if enough people are, that will create a significant hazard.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And even, you know, the fact that cases are going up or sort of plateauing in a lot of these states, I think demonstrates that, you know, these lockdowns or maybe lockdown isn't the right word, the containment measures aren't nearly strict enough. Um, You know, I've read a decent amount of research suggesting that, like, keeping people directly inside probably isn't uh, that, you know, that important. Like, there's almost no uh, evidence that big outbreaks happen outdoors, you know, so long as people aren't gathering together in huge groups or anything like that. But when it comes to, uh, like sanitation measures where you know at grocery stores you know like you're you're wiping down the the register and the and the belt in between every purchase and you're only allowing people so many people in the stores and you're sanitizing all the carts and everything um like that those measures you know from what i've seen and i think it's probably representative they've been pretty half-hearted at best in most stores you know some some places are taking it seriously but others are just sort of going along with what seems to be the general practice, and it manifestly isn't good enough. Yeah. Um, um, because you're still seeing this sort of brush fire, slow burn of, of kind of plateaued cases.
2: Sure. I'd say a couple things about that. First of all, uh, it, it's, it's far more than just stores. The real problems are these various enclosed spaces that have become huge vectors for the disease. I'm talking about nursing homes. I'm talking about prisons. I'm talking about meat packing plants and other facilities like warehouses where clearly the measures are not nearly enough and these these cases are spreading like wildfire. The second part of that is that what we've seen in in particularly in several Asian nations is if that someone if someone gets the disease, if they test positive for COVID-19, they are not sent home. They are Put into an isolation facility that is reasonably, you know, it's modest, but it's not jail. Uh, and they're given the, the sundries that they need to survive. And they're told to stay there away from their family. Because one of the biggest ways that this thing seems to spread is within people's homes, within a family. Yep. And so we're not doing any of that. And, and not only do they quarantine and, and isolate people who have the disease, but also the contacts of those people, people who were exposed to people who have the disease. And we're certainly not doing that. So uh, uh, there, there's no question. I mean, if you look at what Italy did, Italy this week got out of their lockdown. They relaxed some restrictions on their lockdown after driving cases to a much lower level. And their relaxation is roughly equivalent to our lockdown. Like, like th- That's <laughs> that right. what they're doing now is pretty much the same thing as what we've been doing all along. So obviously, we have not been taking this uh, seriously enough. We have not been putting in sort of the best practices that we've seen internationally. Uh, and it shows in our numbers. We're plateauing, and yet now we've decided, oh, it's all over.
0: It's tricky because these situations uh, call for a amazing coordination amongst the people, the representatives, the the bureaucrats, the public health officials, and and we just have. I mean, this is revealing so many dysfunctions uh, that that you can't just chalk it up to um, you know our culture based on like America freedom, which is. Because let me say, I'm Greek, right? And I have family members in Greece, and Greece has done a phenomenal job because essentially they immediately shut down all businesses except for pharmacies and grocery stores. They said that no one can go out unless you have a dog. You can walk your dog, right? And and the thing is, like, Greeks are known for flagrantly, like, disobeying the law. Like, I remember (laughs) growing up, one of my, like, favorite memories is this tiny little one-way street where somebody... Parked the car in the one way street and abandoned it, facing the wrong way, going down the one way street <laughs> and this was like this is, this is like a city in Athens right with millions and millions of people, robust city where like everywhere they have to put these little like cement things on the sidewalk so you don 't park on the sidewalk to prevent you from like literally Greeks will do anything They'll, there was a, a surgeon outside of a uh, surgery room once smoking in front of a no smoking sign in the hospital. I, anyway <laughs> the point is Greeks Greeks. Definitely have this kind of um, – I would never call them libertarians, right? But this this like I'm going to do what I want to do, all right, whether you like it or not kind of mentality. And yet they – like if you looked at the, the kind of drone videos over Athens to this day and going back – empty. All the streets are totally empty. Not a car, not a person. And it's not because they respect the law. So so I don't know if it's because they understand the severity their neighbor Italy was going through a tremendous amount of suffering. I don't know if it's the cohesiveness of of the kind of culture where where you um, you know you listen to what your family does and you and you cohere. But they locked it down as it were, right? And and did severe restrictions immediately and that had a huge effect. Now, you know we don't have a lot of those factors culturally but um if you don't do that like you said david we we don't we need to do a lot more testing we don't have the 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 tracing right we're not we're not doing that we don't have the protective gear for the essential workers for the you know people in the hospital it's just like so many different places that we're failing and all that we seem to be seeing over and over again is just this like let's make sure the economy doesn't suffer as much as it's going to right like it's the, it's the most dystopian thing I can imagine. I, I, I
2: think those are really good points. That's really interesting about Greece. And I, I'd say one thing, and I don't know what, whether or not this is true of Greece, maybe it is, is that we in America have lost complete faith in our governmental institutions, and really most of our institutions, to be honest. Um, and I think that's playing a big role here. If if you don't have a belief that government is you know interested in your best interest, then why would you listen to them when they say don't leave your house and mm-hmm. all of these yeah. things that you're we're doing to destroy uh, the economy uh, uh, in 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 myriad ways? I, I think right. that's I think right. that's a big part of it. Um,
0: yeah, I did notice the call for like Matthew McConaughey and, and football coaches to go out there and talk because people don't listen to political leaders. So they need the, the actual people that are famous on Instagram or whatever, you know, need to lead the it's way. No,
2: there's no question. We wouldn't have locked down at all if the center on the Utah Jazz didn't contract COVID-19 and shut down the NBA season, which happened right, the, sec- right. the same day as Tom Hanks getting the disease that was the only time that we got serious about this and that was probably 50 to 100,000 cases in realistically because you know one thing about this is the numbers are like feeling a piece of the elephant we we have no idea how many people actually have contracted this disease we have no idea how many people have died from this disease the excess mortality rates that we've seen out there are far beyond what the official death counts are Uh, obviously if you don't have enough testing, you don't know how many cases there are out there. We are flying completely blind and, uh, to, to, to shut it down in this, in that environment, uh, and, and to say, all right, well, we did our best. Now it's time to reopen the country (laughs) because you know, everybody needs to go to Applebee's.
0: But David, at least, at least we have the most talented principled leaders in DC that anyone could hope for.
2: (laughs) Well, we do have Jared and, uh, you know, we have the guy who wrote Dow 36,000, apparently doing the, uh, the modeling now, uh, 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 Kevin Hassett, who's this terrible economist has been wrong about everything, who is apparently doing the modeling that the government is relying on when it suggests that we won't have any cases by May 15th or something like that. Uh, it's, it's, it's nuts.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> clown car really doesn't begin to to describe it. Um I wanted to return though to uh the the meatpacking question. Um you have a uh the prospect has a, a great piece by Ron Knox. I'm not sure who that is, but uh it's about the the outbreaks there and about the market concentration of, you know, the the meat supply chain. Um and how that's increase the the vulnerability to uh, the outbreaks, but also, you know, um, has a lot of other negative effects. So could you could you run through that one for us?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this this was so important. Ron Knox uh, works at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, which is uh, a a really great anti-monopoly group uh, that has been around uh, for for, I believe, 30, 40 years. Um, And the the I've been looking at agricultural consolidation for a number of years now um and it's it's brought to a head in this crisis just like many other supply chains right I mean the fact that we couldn't get masks the fact that we couldn't get you know personal protective equipment and you know random things like the swabs that are used in testing uh all goes back to these Very concentrated supply chains. Half of the swabs, for example, are made in northern Italy. And so when when northern Italy uh, had its crisis, uh, we couldn't get the swabs. Um, Same thing with masks, which are mainly, uh, you know, come out of China uh, and other PPEs as well. Um, With agriculture, uh, it's the same kind of thing, only you're talking about the processing plants. Something like 50 beef plants in the United States produce uh, and process 98% of the beef that we see. Um, This is because the processing companies are are usually oligopolies. There are three major beef, or four major beef companies. There are three or four major pork companies. There are three or four major chicken companies. And uh, the packers uh, sort of sit in the middle, and they get the best of both worlds. They squeeze the producers, the farmers and ranchers, on the prices, and then they sell upstream to... The, the retail and wholesale outlets at top dollar. So, so the money is all flowing into the packers while both other sides of the chain get screwed. And uh, a lot of that is because of this bottleneck here with the processing plants. So if you're a rancher, you, you pretty much don't have anywhere to go. I was talking to J.D. Schulton, who's a congressional candidate in Iowa. He's, he told me that there used to be one processing plant in every county in Iowa. And now are, there are like three in the whole district. And so if you're a rancher, you used to have a choice. If, if, you know, you weren't getting a good price on the processing from your local pr- plant, you could go to the one in the next county over, uh, and you could try to get a better price. If there are only three, uh, you, you don't have many options. The, the next one might be, you know, hundreds of miles away. And so that is the way in which This consolidation of the supply chain has uh, 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 occurred, and and that's the reason why it occurred, because it's big profits for the packers. Now, you come to the crisis where these meatpacking plants are vectors for the spread of COVID-19, and you start shutting them down one by one, and pretty soon, by the time you have 10 of these things shut down, you're talking about a quarter of the meat supply. And so that is uh, something that's liable to create shortages. There's also the situation where uh, restaurants really aren't needing as much meat right now. And you have a commercial supply chain and a consumer supply chain. And uh, because of this consolidation, it's very hard to move between one and the other. Uh, They really are on separate tracks and, uh, it, it's just difficult to, to, to move in that direction. Now, there are a few, uh, I know around me, there are a few, uh, uh, restaurants that are sort of selling groceries, uh, in an attempt to square that circle. Uh, but that's, you know, that, that's not done at scale. And so you're seeing this incredible dichotomy, uh, not necessarily in meat, but in many other markets, uh, and in meat too, uh, where, You have this tremendous need for food, people lined up for miles uh, in food, uh, you know, seeking uh, 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 nutrition in food banks and things like that. While at the same time, farmers are destroying crops in the field, uh, flushing out milk. And uh, because they have nowhere to store these pigs and and cattle, uh, because the processing plants are shut down, they're euthanizing. Uh, animals at alarmingly large rates uh, because they don't want to pay to keep them around, uh, keep them fed and whatnot. So uh, it is a, a serious problem that reveals the need for more local and regional agricultural supply chains that are more flexible, that uh, aren't uh, susceptible to this, uh, the, the effects of consolidation. Almost it's a hidden risk to the system. Uh, it's a risk that isn't thought about when you think, oh, look at all these efficiencies that'll come up if we only have one meatpacking plant uh, and we'll be able to, to get everybody in and out and, and we'll, we'll, we'll have these logistics set up all around the country and this will be great. But what happens when there's a sickness break, uh, outbreak at, at one of those plants? Uh, this is the hidden risk that we uh, ignored for so long and, and hopefully this is a wake-up call.
1: Yeah, and the and the other part of the e- equation, right, is that in these uh, meat packing facilities, um, the workers, you know, you you have, they're they're squeezing the the producers and the and the uh, purchasers on both sides, but they're also squeezing their workforce, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, you you have. Uh, um, Tons of, you know, these are generally pretty awful jobs. It's it's usually immigrants who are who are doing this stuff, and it's hard work too. You know, jointing and boning chicken and beef all day long, uh, slaughtering uh, animals, Um, and you know these folks. Uh, rarely have you know sick leave and stuff and then and so and they're you know they're packed in in these you know quote-unquote efficient you know highly centralized locations and we've just seen out of control outbreaks in a lot of these plants where like more than half of the workforce contracts uh covid and so you know that's what's you know they've been trying to keep them open and then just forced to shut down because you know, half the workforce is too sick to, to come in, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they're, um, you're absolutely right. There was this one plant in Dakota City, Nebraska, which is actually at the confluence of uh, Iowa, Nebraska, and South Dakota, right in that area. And uh, they ended up, te- uh, what they ended up showing is that 669 people within that plant tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, however, you know, they tested everybody, and in the three days between testing everybody and uh, actually getting the results, they told everybody to come into work, right? So so what we now know is 600-plus people who had the disease were all working together with one another uh, during this whole time. And uh, you've just seen this You know, David, I'm, I'm no
0: scientist, but it's almost like those tests are no longer reliable, given that they just went back and interacted <laughs> they've, with they've everyone else And I don't know. They,
2: they may be an undercount at this point. So, uh, you know, uh, the, these have obviously... Uh, slaughterhouse workers were largely immigrants have very little power on the job uh, that has been true you know well before any kind of, of epidemic uh, was was struck uh, and uh, it's it's just the same now and uh, you know if, if you're in that situation you're choosing between a paycheck that you need to survive or your health a lot of people are choosing the paycheck
0: here's the thing that i'm wondering david because it's in times like these that supposedly you know the the good old reformers who say capitalism doesn't need to be ditched it can be saved because the government you know can take care of externalities and sure the invisible hand is giving us the finger right now and all kinds of terrible incentives are operating to euthanize animals and and kill people and and jack up a competition over the price of essential protective gear uh all these things are super terrible but Thank God for the government. They could step in and say, hey, you know what? We should actually really incentivize sick leave. In fact, we should we should not make millionaires and billionaires rich right now. We should really take care of those essential workers who are doing all these things to help us survive in this time. Um, and then you look at what our Congress does, right? And it seems like they're on the side of the capitalists and they're on the side of not – Intervening to take care of these negative externalities, but in fact they're helping the rich get richer and they are part of the problem. Can you tell us a little bit about the politics and the policies and, and kind of the shit show that's gone on uh, in D.C.?
2: Yeah, I mean it's kind of amazing. Uh, so the Democrats and Republicans obviously came into this with different ideas about what needed uh, to be dealt with, uh, or at least they, at least uh, out loud, that's what they said. Uh, With regards to the crisis, Republicans, you know, said that they they really needed to protect industries, protect uh, the the, you know, businesses from collapsing uh, because of the the economic conditions. Uh, uh, Democrats said that they they really needed to bulk up testing. They said they really needed to uh, 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 make sure that uh, any kind of testing is free. To people. They need to make sure that we're protecting individuals who, uh, through no fault of their own, are being laid off, being, uh, being, being uh, put into unemployment. Uh, and they need to uh, make sure that people can get sick leave if they want it, because we're a country that didn't, at the time of the outbreak, have paid sick leave for everybody. So it's really strange. Like, every bill, practically, there is a, a, a rider in it that says, free testing. Like, why didn't you just have to do that once? <laughs> you know, like, why do we right. need free testing every time? And it's because, uh, I, I don't know, the, the things are written in such a way that it just doesn't take. And it's the same with sick leave. There were like two or three bills that said, oh, we're guaranteeing sick leave. And oh, it turns out it was only 10%. Well, now we're really guaranteeing sick leave. Oh, it turns out that that's maybe 20% of the, the, the workforce. Uh, we still don't have full paid sick leave. Uh, even if we had free testing, we don't have free treatment for COVID-19, uh, which means that anyone who, uh, you know, thinks they might have symptoms might not want to get a test because that means they'd have to do something about it and they can't afford to do anything about it. Uh, however, there was only one bill that passed that had the corporate bailout because we, they knew that that was going to take, right? Um, so that was the CARES Act. Which uh, was a 2.2 trillion dollar bill, and it had some some decent things on unemployment in it, and some and, and this small business program, which is a bit maligned, but did get a lot of money out to small businesses. Uh, but the, the the corporate bailout was clearly the largest part of it. Uh, it was a it was 500 billion dollars in the bill, so that was about a quarter of the bill. However, that was put from the bill into a credit facility at the Federal Reserve that could leverage it up by uh, tenfold. So you had, uh, th- this could be as big as a $4.5 trillion, I've been calling it a money cannon, that the Federal Reserve has at its disposal to really cover whatever debts it sees uh, in corporate America. And so that now you're talking about something that's almost two-thirds of the bill. Um, uh, compared to what small businesses got, it's about five to six times as much money. Uh, and just think about that just in in basic terms. If you have uh, uh, small businesses, uh, uh, they approximately account for 47% of all jobs in America. And big businesses account for 53 So almost one to one. But one sector got six times as much money as the other sector. Uh, to deal with the economic uh, depression that we're about to uh, find ourselves in. So what is that a recipe for? It's a recipe for small businesses going under, uh, uh, not just retailers and restaurants and bars, the things that you're going to tangibly see, but also small niche manufacturers, uh, competitors in, in, in niche product spaces, things like that who are, are going to go under in very large numbers, and then you have a, a large business sector that is going to have no problem whatsoever uh, with with you know getting relief that it needs. Uh, and they've been the Fed has been able to do this almost without firing a shot. So they have announced these corporate bond buying programs that have so convinced investors that the Fed will do absolutely whatever it takes to save them, no matter what they put money into. That. You have large companies like Boeing de- uh, de- decline Federal Reserve bailout money, direct money, because they know they can go to the corporate bond markets and get it indirectly, and they don't have to abide by any conditions that the Fed or Congress might have put on them. So uh, it, it sounds, you know, the way that it's, it's being portrayed in the media is that, oh, Boeing declines bailout funds. They don't need bailout funds. But that's not true at all. They got a bailout. They just got it through other means because the Federal Reserve completely propped up the corporate bond market. And, uh, without that, the, the Boeing would never have been able to get one dime. However, they got $25 billion in bond money in, in floating debt, uh, just a couple weeks ago. And so, uh, you're gonna see this incredible number, this, this giant valuation. When all is said and done, trillions of dollars that the Federal Reserve, through its positions and through its signals, has given to the largest corporations in America. There has been temporary puny relief for these smaller corporations that have been fighting one another, smaller businesses, that have been fighting one another, pitting one another against one another for this money. And uh, the result is going, uh, un- unless there's some change in the trajectory, the result is going to be uh, a- a- an economic landscape that is virtually unrecognizable, accelerating all of this corporate con- consolidation we've already been talking about to a degree that we have not seen in this country maybe
0: ever so so, so much so so much for so (laughs) much for drain the swamp you know and like i i realize and all of our listeners realize that trump was never going to drain the swamp and so like when we think of the the terrible democratic party and the and the horrible ways they're kind of uh not serving the the interests of the the people What combination do you think it is of incompetence, corruption, and they just don't care? Like, how do you parse this result in terms of, you know, why the Democratic Party is complicit in this?
2: I think it starts with a miserable strategy. So, you know, everybody and their mother knew that Republicans wanted this corporate bailout and a competent party that actually wanted to govern would have said, oh, if Republicans want that and... Uh, The Trump administration is in an election year and is going to be blamed if the economy crashes. Maybe we could get whatever we want out of this in exchange for that distasteful but perhaps necessary corporate bailout. So, let's do that. Uh, But instead, they left enormous amounts of things on the table, including money for state and local governments, which has been not given to any serious degree. Uh, uh, money for a relatively small amount of money to guarantee that everybody in America gets a paper ballot in the mail uh, for the November election uh, in case we're still in this scenario where we can't leave the House. Uh, It it includes uh, payroll support or ongoing support in terms of a stimulus check. We only did one $1,200 check, uh, a a one-time payment, Rather than uh, a, a monthly stipend, uh, it includes uh, an actual workplace safety standards uh, for the tailored to COVID nineteen that we actually don't have in place right now. So uh, uh, the the Office uh, of uh, 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 Safety and Health, the uh, organization or Occupational Safety and Health uh, uh, Administration, has no way to go into a Smithfield Foods or a Tyson Foods and say, you're violating our guidelines around social distancing, because there are no guidelines. So, um, and, and that, that's just a handful of things. Uh, there, there are like 20 or 30, uh, all of which were not added to this main package when everything was on the line, uh, nor were any meaningful strings attached, uh, conditions, on this bailout money. In fact, the Treasury Secretary can waive any restriction that was put on it by Congress uh, around uh, dividends or executive pay. I mean, All of this money that they're getting can go directly to, to the executives, the shareholders. Uh, it does not have to go to workers. There's no guarantee uh, that uh, a collective bargaining is allowed. There's no guarantee that workers have to remain on the job. Uh, nothing, really. Um, so... Uh, So one is just terrible strategy. The bill originated in the Senate, Mitch McConnell wrote the bill, uh, and then Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer made little helpful tweaks, and uh, then the bill passed. And that has been the trajectory of the big bills here. Now uh, we're, we're in a position where Democrats want more, but Republicans have already gotten everything they wanted, all the leverage that they wanted, and predictably, what Mitch McConnell is saying, let's slow down. Let's, let's you know, see if, let's see if our, our previous efforts have worked. So uh, this is Lucy with the football all over again. So you know, part of it is incompetence. But you know, how many times can something be termed incompetent before you get the belief in your head that this is actually something that Democratic Party leaders wanted as an outcome? I mean, Nancy Pelosi has time and again praised the bipartisan nature of all of these bills that have been passed. Uh, She has said it over and over again. By the way, she's the only one doing any legislating for for various reasons, the biggest being you can't do remote voting in Congress right now. Uh, She has essentially become a (laughs) one-woman Congress, and she likes it that way. She's not bugged by anybody. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to say just that it was bad strategy if she has been the architect of, of, of all of these, uh, all this legislation that has passed, uh, she, at some level, this is how she wanted it to turn out and she needs to own that.
1: Yeah. I think it was Alex Farine who, who point, who said that if you are somebody who thought that, well, Big corporate slush fund just has to happen. And uh, there's kind of no, you know, no getting around that. And, uh, but you can't, you know, any, uh, you know, th- thoroughgoing kind of populist approach, you know, a lot of more, more uh, generous benefits for the rest of the people or uh, strict oversight conditions might create dangerous expectations or, you know, get the rabble out, uh, doing dangerous demagogy, then, um, you would do basically exactly what she's done, you know, and, and Pelosi seems, you know, she, she doesn't seem like she's incompetent, you know, at, at, at working the levers of power, uh, in terms of like the procedure of the house, like the, the thing about negotiation that you mentioned is like the most obvious possible you know, you, you, we've watched how Republicans operate for decades. Um, clearly she must have seen what was going to happen and, you know, maybe thought it was good or that, that like the she wanted to be able to blame the bad things on the Republicans or, or whatever. Right.
2: I right. mean, one of the analogies I, I, I sometimes use, uh, uh goes back to the karate kid. So let, <laughs> let let's talk. <laughs> Let's talk about the Karate Kid. So, Karate Kid 1, Daniel LaRusso moves from New Jersey all the way to California. Everybody wants to kick his ass. Karate Kid 2, he goes to Okinawa, like the other side of the world. Everybody wants to kick his ass. He comes back in Karate Kid 3 to America, again, halfway around the world. Everybody wants to kick his ass at some point. Doesn't Daniel LaRusso look in the mirror and say, is it me? (laughs) Maybe this is me. So I think Democrats have to look in the mirror and say, is it me?
1: Yeah. Um, Well, and this, this brings up another story I I wanted to mention, you know, because you think uh, the karate kid brought up a story
2: you wanted to mention, (laughs)
1: The karate kid is an asshole. You heard it here, folks. Um <laughs> but n- but no, on the on the point about Democrats, uh, you know, we're we're looking at the prospect of this still going on in November, you know, the the economy still being in the toilet, you know, thirty percent unemployment maybe, and no incumbent president has ever won reelection under those kind of conditions. Um so uh that you know that raises the prospect of biden uh being the next president and maybe a democratic congress maybe a huge democratic congress you know i mean that that w- if it's a if it's an actual great depression what has always happened in the past is that the incumbent party gets swept um you know this this happened in the early 30s you know republicans went from a huge majorities in congress to to, to losing you know like half their seats um and so you've got you've got a piece on um by Robert Kuttner, about the policy team around uh, Joe Biden. And that's people like Bruce Reed, who was one of the authors of Welfare Reform in 1996, Anita Dunn, who was uh, you know longtime Democratic consultant who helped uh, Harvey Weinstein with PR strategy when he was accused of rape, um, and now Larry Summers, who famously lowballed the stimulus in uh, 2009 because of his own perception about what was politically realistic so uh could, you know could you sort of run through that piece and and tell us what you know what what you think how does that bode in terms of what the next administration supposing it's biden is going to do to sort of put the country back together well i
2: mean what what obviously what what you just mentioned doesn't bode very well. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, I have been actually for the last two months reporting a, a, a feature piece that we're going to have, I think out next week. Uh, and it's going to be in our next issue of the magazine about this very question. Uh, and we call it Dr. Jekyll or Mr. Biden. Like, who are we going to get? Are we going to get the guy who was the centrist compromiser who uh, seemed to have uh, a lot of ardor for the banking industry in Delaware, who uh, has, has, has sought bipartisanship on its own sake, uh, who has really bad foreign policy instincts. Uh, uh, all of the kinds of, of things that were critiques of Biden during the 2020 campaign combined with this part of the group of advisors, particularly Summers, and it's not just Summers, it's a couple of allies of Summers, uh, colleagues of his as well, who are sitting in on these these daily economic briefings that is where a lot of the policymaking is being done right now. Uh, so, you know, that's on the one side, and that's a lot on the one side, right? On the other side is the fact that we're going through this catastrophic pandemic. And uh, if you listen to Biden and you listen to his advisors, and I actually talked to a number of his advisors for this piece Uh, you get the sense that they do understand that uh, this crisis has exposed significant flaws in the way we go about conducting business in the United States uh, at a political level, at a policy level, and that something needs to change on that uh, because, and and not just because, uh, not for its own sake, but because the people will demand it. And one common thread in, in some of the things you were talking about with respect to uh, panics in you know the Progressive Age, the Gilded Age, or the New Deal, was that the public came out in force to demand changes to the system. And uh, that motivated uh, uh, various actors in the political system, even if they weren't predisposed to be radical reformers, to transform themselves in their politics to pursue those kinds of ends. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt was a patrician. He was not seen as, as someone uh, who was a fire breather. Uh, he ran in 1932 on a balanced budget, uh, and then uh, conditions changed, and he changed with them. Uh, what we know of as Glass-Steagall uh, was the byproduct of Carter Glass, who was a senator out of Virginia, who was seen as a Wall Street stooge. I mean, he was he was a and uh, absolutely in the tank for banking interests. And Glass-Steagall is actually a compromise because what the people were demanding was the full nationalization of the banking system and government completely in charge of currency and credit. And he had to change his views to at least salvage some of the the private banking system by separating those uh, commercial and investment activities. So the question might not be the man, Biden, but the moment and how he is going to be, not how he's going to react, but how he's forced to react to that moment. And so that's kind of a preview of what I'm going to be writing about uh, and and what will be out in the next week or two.
1: Yeah, that it, it's uh it's certainly depressing to look at this rogues gallery of of people who are, you know, coming out, you know, kind of a restoration of all the people who screwed up in the Obama years and previously. Um but one thing I I'm, I'm also curious about, you know, you if you think about what the sort of, you know, the the overarching neoliberal kind of uh, objective is in terms of their policy, you know, what, what are we trying to, to do, um, with all of this welfare reform, shoving people into the labor market, deregulating finance and so on. It's to increase growth, right? You're trying, you're trying to make the economy bigger. Everyone gets to be wealthier and, and, uh, you know, that's what markets do. But if you look at, uh, you know, after the, uh, financial crisis, JW Mason did a, did a great study on this, um, for the Roosevelt Institute, um, the, the after two thousand and seven, um, the rate of economic growth, you know, once it began in two thousand nine, was about forty percent lower than it was from nineteen forty five to two thousand and seven. Um, and it did not; it, it it was permanent. It stayed that low you know, on average, you know, it was some ups and downs, but basically kinked down. And now we're about 15 percent or back in 2017, we were probably uh, we were about 15 percent below that previous trend line. And now we're certainly much lower than that. So I wonder if, you know, any of these advisors you've been talking about have been sort of rethinking their objectives, you know, insofar as these folks, you know, maybe they don't have the right ideas about, uh, you know, justice and fairness and so on. But if you look at their, their stated objectives, clearly it hasn't been working out. Lowballing the stimulus was a disaster for the economy.
2: Well, if you, um, if you listen to Larry Summers when he's out of government, he sounds like the second coming of Thomas Piketty.
0: <laughs>
2: it's, it's only when he goes into government that he gets this, this fealty to corporate interest. Um, I will say that there are other uh, people within the orbit of Joe Biden that uh, are not all wedded to this sort of neoliberal ideology. So Heather Boucher, who is uh, a progressive economist with the Washington Center on uh, Economic Growth, she is uh, in uh, uh, definitely an informal advisor. Jared Bernstein, who was uh, 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 Joe Biden's chief economist while he was vice president, uh, and is uh, he was at the Economic Policy Institute, very left leaning. Now is at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Uh, you know, it was interesting that when they had a token progressive in the Obama administration, they put him in Biden's office. Right? That that was that was where Bernstein was was decided to. You know, that's where they decided to locate him. Uh, in addition, Ted Kaufman, who uh, is a longtime Biden advisor, former chief of staff, became senator. Uh, When Biden uh, became vice president and for two years, knowing that he wasn't going to be reelected in Delaware, uh, went on a crusade against the banks. Uh, uh, He he created the uh, Brown-Kaufman amendment that would have uh, put a size cap on on large banks. Uh, He is running the transition uh, 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 process at uh, uh, within the, the Biden orbit, which means, you know, he'll be in charge of at least. The the process for hiring thousands of people across the government. So uh, there is sort of it is sort of up in the air. And by the way, my 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 you know to the extent that I reach any conclusions in this large piece, it's that I don't know. (laughs) I don't know (laughs) where this is going to lead us. Uh, But I think the point that you make is 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 a correct one and one that should give uh, economists who were around at the time of the Obama era. And uh just just sort of center left economists in general should give them pause uh, this 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 gap in aggregate demand that you're talking about that we never made up uh, sort of does put the lie to the idea that these policies are worth it even though they create winners and losers even though they have damaging effects on certain segments of society because they grow the pie they, they, they build growth. Uh, for for everyone in society and everyone in society can benefit. Uh, if they don't, uh, then you have to think of a different strategy. And and of course, if you're talking, you know, in the immediate term about policies that uh, you know increase employment and things like that, when we don't want people to go outside, I mean, there are all kinds of things within this particular crisis that have to be looked at differently. Uh, and uh, all of the things. You know, I talked about hidden risk before, and this is the kind of thing that the sort of neoliberal ideology writes out of the equation, right? That we, we don't worry about what if the supply chains break? What if, uh, you know, workers uh, uh, live through this precarity and, and any sudden shock can create uh, mass carnage within, within that class? Uh, these things are now coming to the fore. And they're undeniable. And Joe Biden has not attempted to deny them. In fact, he's addressed them head on and said, this is, a, you know, we have to fix this. So if he's about, uh, you know, implementing what works, uh, he, he needs just just basic competence on these things would be a, a break from the past.
0: Well, and it's unclear how much you know the neoliberal economists or politicians drink the Kool Aid and really, really believe you know this is this is still Adam Smith's Wealth of a Nation, baby. Everyone, the whole nation's being taken care of. We're all, which you know, I think people forget. Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations was 1776, a fairly egalitarian move to consider even the poor in in evaluating how your state is doing. And w- there were things about it that are are far more uh, liberal than you might realize today. Except that's not really what neoliberalism is about. It's it's predictable that like I saw an article about Jeff Bezos. Might he might be the first trillionaire because of the pandemic, you know? <laughs> and like 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 neoliberalism and, and capitalism uh, in, in time today is something that really really rewards certain people, certain sectors, and there are other people who want to get on on that action, even if it means in aggregate, you know, there's a lot of suffering, and there's a lot of loss, and a lot of businesses go out. Like, Mr. Potter doesn't care, and it's a wonderful life, that a bunch of other capitalists are suffering during the Depression, right? Like It's still great for him. And and so, like, how much do the economists and the politicians really believe that this is something that really helps everyone in aggregate? And how much are they just influenced by those people who want to take a gamble and maybe be the next Bezos? Yeah, I think
2: it's strongly the latter, and and and, you know, at some level, it doesn't matter what they think. What matters is what, right. what the ultimate impact is. There's an amazing stat that uh, the group, uh, the Institute for Policy Studies, put together. And uh, they looked at billionaires uh, in the last month from, from like uh, mid-March to mid-April and their net worth. And uh, this is a time of 30 million people. Hitting the unemployment lines. This is a time of an unemployment rate that we've never seen in this country in nearly a hundred years. This is just this unbelievable time of precarity. I, I think you know there was a, a stat that half of small businesses didn't pay their rent in April. Thirty-one uh, percent of renters didn't pay their rent in April, which is up from the normal number, which is around fifteen or eighteen. Uh, at that time. Billionaires increase their net wealth by ten percent. <laughs> oh man! And yeah. uh, and a lot of that is because of the stuff that I was talking about with respect to the Federal Reserve. Uh, you know, uh, at the lowest point, March twenty third of the stock market, it was at eighteen thousand. The Dow Jones Industrial Average was at about eighteen thousand points. Uh, by April 29th, it was at 24,000 points. So that's, that's 33% increase. There was that very, uh, uh infamous picture of the set of Jim Kramer's CNBC show where it said, uh, you know, on, on a monitor, uh, in front of Jim Cramer, best, uh, uh, I think it was best week for the stock market since 1938. And then the Chiron underneath, <laughs> Said 16 million people out of work. So you know the the, yeah, yeah. the dichotomy. Yeah. There really is. It's really two different economies. There's an economy for this investor capital ownership class, and there's an economy for the rest of us. And uh, the the crisis has spread these two economies further, much further apart. Uh, and and you know maybe what the Fed's doing will all blow up in its face and. And the, the, the elite class will, will see what how the other half lives for a minute. But uh, I'm not sure that that's going to happen. And certainly right now, what we're seeing is just this incredible dichotomy.
1: Yeah, I remember a bunch of people yelling at me when I characterized, you know, when one of these Fed uh, efforts to stabilize the corporate bond market and provide liquidity to the markets, blah, 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 as a subsidy of big business and the banks um not a direct cash handout of course but you know uh in 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 as many you know preserving their sort of position through a number of mechanisms and you know they're saying oh no this is just preserving the market function and so on and so forth but like you look at this dichotomy and like tell me how on earth it could possibly be the case that the stock market is near you know it's it's Near like record levels, it's back to where it was in like uh, November of 2018 or something. uh, While we are suffering a a great depression, you know clearly it's because they're swimming in Fed liquidity from coming from a million different sources, and it like like you know any other explanation just beggars belief. These are
2: supposed to be the people who more than anyone else. Uh, 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 risk their own money, risk their own capital in order to get these outsized rewards. That the, these rewards aren't supposed to be this big, unless there's there's some level of knowledge in it that that it could be taken away. The, 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 these are the people also who have the most ability to absorb losses in the near term. I mean, if you look at the private equity industry, they have 2.5 trillion dollars in reserve right now. So uh, if somebody has to take losses because we've had this, this economic collapse and these people knew that what they were doing was risky, they pulled money into corporate uh, debt, high yield junk bonds and things like that. You're, you're, you're preserving that? I mean, wh- why? It's They've insane. already made a lot of money off of this system. And they knew the
0: risks that they were taking when they were taking them. They've never been the risk takers. They they've never borne any risk, as you said. Like, and this is you know of course the the cliche, but it's it's true. They they get the benefit of of uh, privatizing the profits and socializing both the costs and the risks. And the real risk bearers and risk takers are the the working class, the poor, the the essential workers, uh, and they're the ones that don't get helped by the representatives. It's 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 upside down world. It's, it's, the, it's the exact, just the same way that like, if you try to think of the, the worst possible way to fund public education, you know, um, this is how you would do it. You would be like, let's take the richest neighborhoods, right? And fund their schools the most. And let's take the poorest neighborhoods and make it like proportionally, you know, uh, funded by like how poor their homes, the value that it's the same kind of thing. The logic of how we allocate resources and who we take care of doesn't make any sense unless you realize that it's being run by the people who don't care about most other people right
2: yeah uh, absolutely and uh you know if anything this crisis has exacerbated it you know i mean that's really the question of what is going to happen in the aftermath will we look back and say this accelerated all these existing trends uh or will we look back like we did in the depression like we did in other times of war and strife and even pandemics? Uh, and will we say that was the hinge point? That was the point where people had enough of a system that was rigged against them and forced the political system to respond. I mean, that that's really the threshold question of uh, where we're at right now, and I think it's a jump ball. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's really not clear to me Uh, There is so much insulation in that elite class and it's so tied to the political class that it's unclear that the sort of normal mechanism, the normal channel of political responsiveness, whether that will uh, actually be engaged right now.
0: What gives you hope? Because I love the jump ball analogy because that's the most hopeful thing maybe we've said um, during the entire, the entire time, because, you know, I see, I see Nancy Pelosi with her 24 different ice creams and I'm thinking Marie Antoinette. And so maybe, you know, like what, 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 gives you hope that, uh, that we can use this opportunity, um, to, to make transformative change. Well, what gives me hope is history.
2: So, I mean, some of the things I was just talking about, I mean, uh, the, another great example is, uh, this guy named Francis Townsend, so Francis Townsend was a retired physician, and in 1933, he decided to write a letter to the editor of the Long Beach Press-Telegram calling for a $200 a month stipend for uh, the elderly. He saw people rooting through garbage cans, uh, uh, old, old people in poverty during the Depression, and he said, we got to do something about this. They worked all their life. Uh, we, we have to give them some dignity once they can no longer work. And this idea, within two years, spawned thousands of Townsend clubs all across the country. This is, this is 1930s. The, there was no internet. But they, this spawned two, uh, several thousand Townsend clubs and a petition that was delivered to FDR in 1935 with 20 million signatures on it.
1: <laughs> <Wow>.
2: <laughs> and, and this ended up being the, 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 pro, the, the system that uh, became Social Security. This is what the political uh, class responded to in creating Social Security. And by the way, uh, Townsend at the time thought that that was terrible. Like, it wasn't enough. It, it, what, they, what, what they put together in Social Security wasn't good enough. And, you know, over time, people who dissented uh, made that program get better and better and better because it was pretty restricted at the, at the outset, uh, uh, restricted farmers, restricted a lot of African-American laborers, uh, and it got better over time. So that kind of organic uh, 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 activism born of, of rage, born of anger, born of just the need uh, to to speak out against a certain injustice uh, is within our capacity still. I, I truly believe it's within the American capacity. Whether or not it will be heated is where we get the jump ball. But uh, I, I believe that, you know, look at what we're seeing around the country. We've seen over 150 Worker actions at workplaces—I don't want to call them wildcat strikes because uh, you know they're—they're they're the each action is different—but we've right, seen right. Uh, we've seen over 150 of them in the in in a month, and uh, I don't think we're done with them either. We saw this right, uh, right. executive order by Trump saying everybody go back and work at the meat plants, and you saw a lot of workers come out and say I'm not going to do that. Uh, uh, so you know. I think there's a moment where we're calling people essential workers, and they're realizing that that there's some power attached to that name, and that they can do something with that. And if you apply that to sort of government policy writ large, I think you can envision a a manner in which the, the public outcry becomes too much for the system to bear
0: what what do you see in addition to um you know worker led strikes that So, for example, what pressure can people and our listeners put on the representatives? I know there's another bill coming up and we've lost a lot of leverage already and the Republicans maybe don't care. Uh, but what things could we be pressuring representatives to be fighting for on the behalf of the people?
2: Well, I mean, you know, there, there certainly are a number of things that are, that are on the wish list of people. Another thing that we saw, uh, particularly on May Day, were rent strikes. Um, all around the country in a in sort of a nationalized fashion, which is uh, unprecedented in American history. We've seen, you know, a building uh, engage in a rent strike against a landlord, but we've never seen it in multiple cities all across the country at once, uh, like we did on May Day. So uh, that's an activity that I think uh, we're going to see a lot more activism uh, on. Uh, you know, pressuring legislators... Great. I mean, the first thing you need to be pressured on is, you know, Nancy Pelosi needs to know that that what she's doing by running a one woman Congress is is unacceptable and disenfranchising the hundreds of millions of people. Um, so I, I'd say that's that's one of the big fights to, to actually give members of Congress a real voice rather than Nancy Pelosi hands him a piece of paper and says, take it or leave it. Um, uh, you know, there, I, I think there are a number of things you uh, One thing that is is a smaller point, but you've seen sort of this outrage at uh, individual uh, restaurant chains and medium-sized businesses that found themselves in possession of these, these small business loans. So like Ruth's Chris Steakhouse and Shake Shack and all of these other businesses... And they were allowed to because of a loophole that Congress put into the law that said, uh, as long as any one of your locations has less than 500 people in it, you're allowed to get a loan. Uh, Ruse Chris kind of went around and, and and did this thing where they had two separate subsidiaries get the maximum loan amount, so they actually doubled their, their, their amount. Uh, but what did we see after all that happened? We saw all these companies come out, uh, the Lakers, the L.A. Lakers, got a uh, small business loan. Uh, 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 the the school that that uh, Steve Mnuchin sends his kids to private school, they got a, a small business loan. Um, all of them, I think, almost all of them that have been in the news in a high profile way, have had have given the money back. And the reason they did. Uh, is twofold. One, it's because the Treasury Department changed the guidelines of the program, said, uh, if if you got a loan of over $2 million, we're going to audit you, and you better have really, really needed it, uh, or else you're going to be in some trouble. But that was motivated by the public outrage. Uh, the public said, registered their disapproval at this thing, and then uh, the the political system, and Steve Mnuchin, not, not like a tribune of the people, Steve Mnuchin <laughs> acted. He acted. Uh, and we could see that come up again and again. There are going to be opportunities uh, where we're, we're going to see these injustices. And we have to be attuned to them, and we have to uh, uh, make sure that, that we raise our collective voice.
1: Well, it's... It's uh been a bit over an hour, we should probably let you go, but before we do, uh David, um I know you've been doing, you know, tr- trying to get some uh, you know, community support and subscriptions for the American Prospect. So can you tell listeners how to do that
2: um if yeah. they may be interested? Well, I am speaking to you on Giving Tuesday. So, uh I will say <laughs> that uh yes, uh reader support is the biggest uh, opportunity we have to continue our work. Uh, readers have been extremely generous in the midst of this crisis. Um, uh, we we have been able to uh, uh, really count on our readers. Uh, there are a lot of ways to get involved. There's just standard donations. There's recurring donations where you get uh, you know you give in three bucks a month. We'll give you the magazine. You give in a little bit more. We'll give you other special uh, perks. Uh, uh tickets to events and things like that, virtual events in this case. Um, uh, there's obviously subscriptions. Uh, we actually started our our you know, reader supported program really in earnest back in December. And uh, we didn't expect to have to ramp it up so quickly in in the wake of a crisis, but we have and, and our readers have responded. So the place you go is prospect.org slash donate uh if you just want to donate or or uh, prospect.org slash subscribe uh, if you want to subscribe we put out six issues a year in print uh, you can hold it in your hands and everything uh uh, magazines uh in addition to if you just want to support the work we're doing on a daily basis online you can do it there as well so prospect.org slash donate or prospect.org slash subscribe
1: yeah, I'm, Thank I'm a you, su- David. Uh, subscriber, and I can confirm the magazine does exist. You can't hold it in your <laughs> hand. It's a, always a great read. Um, so, yeah, th- you know, it's a ex- excellent work you guys are doing over there. You know, like one of the, you know, three or four best publications in America, as far as I'm concerned, and definitely worth a few bucks if you have them to spare. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, thanks for coming on the show, David. And, uh, we'll put links to all the articles we mentioned and the, uh, uh, subscription stuff in the description. Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks for listening everybody. We'll see you next time.
0: Thanks. All right.
1: Thanks a lot.